you guys. Welcome back. This is week 24 of Creative Come Follow Me for the New Testament. And this week we are just in two chapters and some of my very favorites. This is Luke and John together. And what we're going to study is what happens in the Garden of Gethsemane, at least as much as we can get out of the New Testament. Thankfully, we have a lot of additional information when you look into the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants. And we'll try to bring all that in together today because we really don't have a lot of verses to cover, but the depth of what we're going to study is pretty profound. So we'll try to take our time. This is where you're going to see, well, again, we'll kind of pick up at the Last Supper because remember, we're reading the Synoptic Gospels in pieces week by week. So we're going to pick up at the Last Supper and we'll see the betrayal. We're going to see the denials by Peter. You're going to actually get to step into the Garden of Gethsemane and get the experience of the suffering of the Savior. And I just felt like, well, there was one quote that jumped out to me this week. That It's in the notes. It's sort of nestled into the middle of the notes, but it's from Elder Maxwell, and I really loved it. And I think it kind of summarizes what we're going to see this week from the Savior. This is what he says. While most of our suffering is self-inflicted, some is caused by or permitted by God. This sobering reality calls for deep submissiveness, especially when God does not remove the cup from us. In such circumstances, when reminded about the pre-mortal shouting for joy as this life's plan unfolded, we can perhaps be pardoned if in some moments we wonder what all the shouting was about. For the faithful, what finally emerges is an understanding of things as they really are such as the reassuring realization that we are in the Lord's hands. But brothers and sisters, we were never really anywhere else. That's what I felt like as I studied this experience of the Savior in Gethsemane. We're only getting this beginning piece of what will be a very long weekend for the Savior, but it is a really important piece. And what I loved about his message, especially so much of what we're going to study is it's about his submission, allowing his will to get swallowed up in the will of the Father. To me, I feel like it is this incredible manifestation of hope. It, it basically says that he has hope that there is a bigger picture, that there is a plan, and that if he simply submits to the will of the Father, all that needs to be known will eventually be known. And I just think he is this pinnacle example for us for how to deal with adversity, whether it's caused by ourselves or brought on so that we can learn a key lesson. I just think there's a lot to learn. So grab your scriptures, grab your notes. There's so much to study. It's time to get started. We often turn to Luke 22 for some understanding of what the suffering in Gethsemane was like, which you'll find at the end of 22. But I also really love some tidbits that you find at the beginning of Luke 22. They're going to be really familiar. We're going to talk about the Passover, the Last Supper, the ordinance of the sacrament. So some things we've already studied in the other synoptic gospels. But there's some key differences in Luke that I just, it just endears me to his writing. I love the way he phrases things. So for example, you learn into that the chief priests and the scribes are seeking how they might kill Jesus. What I really like that you find in Luke that you don't find in the others is a link to the Book of Mormon. So if you go on the footnotes, you're going to see a link to the second, second Nephi 10, I think is where it is. Yeah, 10.5. This is where you learn what was in their hearts, that priestcraft is at play. And that there, it's because of that wickedness and that blackness that is seeping into their hearts that they're able to do the things that they do. I just think where we know so much about how priestcraft destroyed both the Nephites and the Lamanites at different times in the Book of Mormon, I think it's a powerful reminder that Satan's strategies have been at play for a long, long time and in lots of different groups, and he doesn't have to change up his playbook very often. Another thing I really like that's phrased differently in Luke is what you see in verse 4. It says, And he went his way, this is talking about Judas, and communed with the chief priests and the captains how he might betray unto them. I think it's the his way part that caught my eye. It reminded me of Elder Corbridge's talk, you know, that epic talk he gave about the way and that Jesus Christ is the way, and ultimately it doesn't matter what other way you pick if it's not his you're off course. Like there just is no other. In fact, it reminded me, I recently, I spoke at a seminary graduation in our stake and I was teaching the graduates about an experience I had on a reservoir. So just this last summer for our family reunion, a bunch of my siblings were on the water at the same time. And we had this desire to take a picture because there were so many of us in one spot, but it took, you know, 10 or 15 minutes to wrangle all of us and get each other to hold on to the kayaks next to them. And in that 10 minutes, 
all, you know, eight or 10 of us that were out there slowly drifted. We just didn't realize it until after the picture was taken. Then we saw that actually we'd gone about 20 feet or 30 feet off course, which was interesting to me because I was telling the graduates, like, it wasn't that we were headed towards a waterfall or some shark infested waters or something. Nothing dramatic was on this other shore. It just simply wasn't the right shore. So if we'd continued to drift, we get farther from the family that we're hoping to get close to. We're farther from the ice cream sandwiches that are waiting for us, like from the shade, all of the goodness that he's intending for me that's on this beach, I'm slowly drifting away from. And that's what I think is happening with Judas. I don't know how Again, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, I don't know Judas's motives. I start to, I, I tend to think that maybe he thought he could push things along. That maybe when he thinks about his way, he thinks he's going to put the Savior in some, some kind of spot where he'll have to make a stand and that the Romans will have to see his power and that then he'll conquer the way they hoped the Messiah would conquer the Romans. I, I don't know for sure, but it, it makes me think that it really doesn't matter. Even if Judas's motives were simply money, it doesn't matter what his way was. If it's not the Savior's way, it can't be successful. And we know that with Judas. We see how his story ends in Potter's Field. We know there's no rejoicing. There's no, there's no light at the end of this tunnel. So I feel like there's something powerful about that phrase, that he was going to go his way. And you'll see that carry through all this week's study. Another thing you're going to see is that um, direction about the Passover, that he tells his apostles to go and find a certain person who has prepared a room for the Passover. And then you see the ordinance of the sacrament brought to pass. And what I like about it is that he chooses to do this on this last night. I'm sure a piece of his choice is because he needs to teach the apostles and he needs to put in place this ordinance of the sacrament. And there's a lot of things that I'm sure he needs to get done. But I think a lot of what he wants to get done, in fact, what's stressed in Luke's account is that he desired to be there. You can see it in 15. And he said unto them, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I think there's brotherhood here. I think he loves these people. You know, these apostles have been with him for these three years. They've seen a lot and there is a kinship among them. And so before he goes to do this incredibly hard thing, he wants them close, which I think is remarkable because I feel like, you know, with the Savior, he could have had every reason to go off onto a mountaintop by himself or, you know, like just commune with the Father. And instead he chooses to take this night and spend it with his, those who will carry on the work after he's gone. And I just think that's remarkable. The ordinance of the sacrament is pretty similar to what we see in the other accounts, but I do love that you get reminders about what it's for. I love that he talks about the bread being broken, you know, in front of them, broken right in their, in, in their view so that they can see that they are, the visuals, I think, help us remember what it's for. When I see the priests up in the front of the chapel breaking bread, I like to think about being broken open, almost like a seed is broken open so that something new can grow. That's what I picture when I picture the priests tearing the bread, because I feel like that's what the Savior is trying to teach them. He's saying it's every time this ordinance occurs, you're going to be in a position to become something new if you'll just open up and then receive what I have to offer you. I love that in both of these, in 19 and in 20, he says, this is my body, which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. And then in 20, this cup is the New Testament or new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. It's great to me about this is even President Nelson has spoken about, it's in the object lessons this week, if you go in the notes, but he has this great article that's all about how the atonement is infinite in scope. You know, his atonement covers all time and all mankind, even across worlds, right? It's infinite in its reach, but it is also incredibly individual. He talks about how the atonement is for you and it is for me. And I think he stresses that in these simple prayers, that this atonement is for each and every one of them and each and every one of us. And so I loved seeing that in Luke's account. When you go a little bit further, you're going to see that he also talks about who will betray him. Kind of similar to what we saw in the other gospels, he doesn't necessarily called Judas out, but he knows. And I think Judas knows that he knows. So if you look in these verses, remember I told you a couple weeks ago that I think that didn't have to be Judas. Like if it, if it was, Jesus had to be betrayed because that was 
prophesied. He says that to his apostles. But I don't think it had to be in this way. I don't think it had to be Judas, since we know doctrinally that no one is foreordained to be evil. He, he chose it. And if he hadn't chose it, other things would have come to pass. One of the reasons I believe that is from what you see in Luke. So if you go in 21, he talks about how there is a hand that will betray him and it's at the table. And then in 22, and truly the son of man goeth as it was determined, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. This is when he's trying to teach them it didn't have to be this way. At least that's how I read it. I think he's saying it was determined that I would be sacrificed, that this would occur and at the hands of these evil men, I will die. How that was happening, how that was facilitated, didn't have to happen this way. It was chosen by Judas. Then he's going to teach them a little bit about leadership. It's interesting because in the Luke account, we don't get the washing of the feet, but you see kind of echoes of it because he's talking about servant leadership and the value of it and what his kingdom's going to look like. So if you look in the verses, you can see in 24, and there was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest. I kind of take this the same way I read the verses that talk about, Lord, is it I? You know, none of them know who the betrayer is and they all wonder if it's themselves. And I wonder sometimes if in that same group, they're thinking like, well, it couldn't be Peter. <laughs> you know, well, it couldn't be John. He's your favorite. You know, like, I don't know what their, I don't know what their discussion was, but I don't think this is ego. I don't think they're, when I read it, I can't picture Peter like with this great big ego thinking he's the greatest. It, it just doesn't fit with their character. The way I pictured it is that they were thinking each other was the greatest and they're wondering how that's going to play out later. What you have to love about the Savior's response is he teaches them what real greatness is, especially in the kingdom of God. That real greatness is evidenced by one who serves and one who serves not to get kickbacks or not to get recompense in any earthly way, but one who serves simply out of the love of God. And when you have that heart, then you're a leader. That's what he teaches. In fact, Elder Uchtdorf taught something really similar. I wrote it in my margins. He says, in God's kingdom, greatness and leadership mean seeing others as they truly are, as God sees them, and then serving them as such. Like it's this, that's what a real leader is. That's why the Savior exemplifies it so beautifully. And that's what he tries to help them understand. In fact, if you go on 30, you can see that he teaches them a little bit about what the kingdom of God will be like and what they'll be doing in it, which I thought was kind of fascinating because basically what he says to them is, when you get to that place, to the kingdom of God, when, when you cross the veil and you come to my kingdom, you're going to sit at my table, you're going to eat with me, and you're going to have a really big calling. <laughs> Their calling is going to be to be a judge in Israel, just like we studied a couple weeks ago. But that's essentially, you know, that's a weighty calling. The same way if you enter into a ward and you're called as a bishop or your spouse is called as a bishop, that's a, that's a weighty calling. And that's basically what he's saying, but in an eternal kingdom of God kind of way. So this is not going to be a, they're going to need to practice servant leadership in their mortal lives because that's what they're going to be doing for a long, long time after. And he's trying to help them understand that that's what greatness is. Greatness is someone who will serve and who will show up and who will do it out of love and compassion for their fellow men and for God. And they're going to get lots of chances to do that in the kingdom of God. Somewhere between the Last Supper and the Ordinance of the Sacrament and the Garden of Gethsemane, we have this little bit of guidance to Simon Peter. If you go in the verses in 31, it says, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. I think what he's trying to say to Peter is, look, there's a target on your back, the adversary, because of who you are. And you get that more fully when you go into the Joseph Smith translation. So if you go on the JST in the footnotes, it says, Satan hath desired you, that he may sift the children of the kingdom as wheat. I basically see this situation similar to like when you go bowling, you know, like I'm not a great bowler by any stretch. So I really just aim for that center pin, knowing that most of the time, if I can get that center pin with a good strong hit, then all the other ones will tumble after it. That's what he's trying to teach Peter. Like I need you to be a leader. And the reason Satan is coming after you is because of who you are and what you can do. You know, like we'll go into this in the object lessons as well, but the Savior can see things in Peter that Peter can't see in himself. And so he's trying to help him understand, like, this is why you're going to deal with so much temptation and so much adversity. I think it's the same reason our teenagers are hit with so much temptation and so much adversity, because they're going to do incredibly good things for the kingdom of God. In fact, if you look in the gospel library, when you search this topic, a lot of them are why Satan has a target on women and on mothers and on families. It's that same idea, because you can impact so many. So I love that he emphasizes that. 
But what I really love is what you find in 32. This is the Savior's response. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. This is the hope that I'm talking about, you guys. Like His response is one of, I know you're going to do okay. I've prayed for you. I've prayed that your faith will not fail you. So when you're converted, strengthen your brother. It's just this, I know you're going to make it. I just think it's this remarkable hope that Peter will be able to thwart the adversary. It's just, it must have motivated Peter as well as probably made him nervous at the same time that this was, I think what the Savior is saying when he prays for Peter, he prays not that this situation will be removed from Peter. He wants Peter to become the man he needs to become. He wants him to be on that trajectory to become something greater. And so he knows that he can't take away what the adversary will try to do to him. So instead of trying to help him escape that situation, he prays for strength. It's this internal, the same thing we see in the Book of Mormon of Nephi, when he prays that he'll have the strength to break the bands. Like, it's the same idea. He's basically praying that Peter, as the center bowling pin, will have super glue on the bottom and be like adhered to the floor so that even if Satan's able to hit him dead on with a giant bowling ball, he will not topple and neither will all those who will look to Peter as an example and as a teacher and as a healer and all those things that he'll become as we study the rest of the New Testament. I just, it inspired me to pray differently for my kids and for myself even, that that I don't pray for escape or even relief from their adversities, but that they themselves will be strengthened. I really like it, especially as we go a little further in Luke 22, and you see that the same thing happens with the Savior as he suffers in Gethsemane. So that's where we go next. So you can see what's about to happen. Peter makes this bold stance and he says, I'm ready, Lord. I'm ready to go. <laughs> and I just like, it's, it's in 33. And he said unto him, Lord, I'm ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. You know, he's on this high. It's this, I call it the EFY high. It's like, he has just been a part of the last supper. He's seen the savior give this new ordinance. He's heard the intercessory prayer. Like he's on a high and he feels confident what's powerful is what the Savior is saying is, you have a solid testimony, Peter. In fact, Peter's told us his testimony, that he believes Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We've heard Peter say that, but there is room for conversion that still has to happen with Peter. We know that because the denial is going to happen. I mean, even down the road a little ways when he's back out on the water fishing again, and the Savior comes and says like, if I need fish, I can get fish. I guess that's Elder Holland's rendition of it. But you know, like it's, there is a a shift that's going to need to happen, and it's called conversion. And the same thing has to happen with us. It's what our prophets and apostles have been teaching us over and over again. You can find a, a talk or two on this in almost every conference, that there needs to be more than testimony in our hearts. It's one thing to know the gospel is true, to believe it's true. It's a whole nother level to change because you know the gospel is true, to act and to become because you know it so profoundly that you can't imagine any other situation. You know, like it's a, it's a change. In fact, I love, there's a great talk from Elder Bednar about this conversion and the difference between conversion and testimony. I think it was in his talk that I, that he linked to Alma 32. It was just in one little footnote, but that's what I think happens in Alma 32 when he's talking about that seed that we can plant and have abide in us, that seed that you can watch change. To me, that's conversion. Conversion is going from a seed to something greater. And that process of becoming a tree is conversion. It takes time. It takes a lot of daily efforts and humility and submitting to the gardener, like all of those things. But it is something that once you have changed, there's no going back. You know, that oak tree can never become a seed again. <laughs> there's no retreating once you're converted. And that's what he's trying to say to Peter. I need you not to just have a testimony of me. I need you converted. And that links into what we read last week about the Holy Ghost. Because on the day of Pentecost, just 50 days in the future, he'll start to get an understanding of why he needs this peace. The Holy Ghost is someone who helps our hearts convert. That's where we become new creatures in Christ. That's, that's going to happen for Peter, and he will never deviate again. But it's going to take some time. And in fact, what I think the Savior is trying to teach him is when that happens for you, and it will happen, Peter, strengthen your brethren teach them how to do that same process, which is exactly what the apostles are still doing today. They are converting themselves over the course of their lifetimes and then seeking to convert us, which I just love, you know? Okay. Once he's taught Peter that he's going to need that 
fire in the bones that Jeremiah talked about, then he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane. And just like we studied before, it seems like some of the apostles are asked to stand by the gate or outside the garden, and then three are invited to come a little bit closer, but they still don't go all the way in. In fact, the verses talk about how there are stones cast away. So I don't know exactly how far that is, but far enough away that they don't, they can't see the effects nearly as intensely as Savior himself will feel it. They they may have a witness of it, but not in detail. Again, because it's nighttime and they're in a wooded place. I don't know how much they can see, but I think they, they see enough to feel the weight. In fact, that's what you're going to find when you go into Luke 22. So for example, in 39, you find that he goes to this set place. In fact, that's what it's called. And he, when he was at the place in 40, he said unto them, pray that ye enter not into temptation. His concern is still for his apostles, despite what is what is right in front of him. I found myself wondering what the temptation could be. You know, like what could they be tempted to do in this scenario? And I sort of assumed it must be that they would be tempted to stop him. You know, the same way Peter's going to try and cut off someone's ear to try and stop things from rolling. I wondered if that was the temptation they would face. And it wasn't until I was studying in Mark that I got some answer. I don't know that it's the full answer, but definitely added some understanding. It's in the Joseph Smith translation of Mark. And this is where you're going to find out what these apostles were tempted to do. So in Joseph Smith, Mark 1436, it says, when the disciples got there, they were sore amazed. The weight of this experience is heavy to them and they're amazed at it. And then they begin to feel very heavy. Something about the situation they're in is they can feel it and they are that that is impacting them emotionally, physically, all those things. And then it says that they complain in their hearts, wondering if this be the Messiah. That to me is the temptation, the weight and the heaviness of what is ex- they're experiencing, even just being on the periphery of the Savior's experience is causing them to doubt, or it might cause them to doubt. And I feel like that's what the Savior is saying Pray that you enter not into temptation. You're going to be tempted by watching this, even from a stone's cast away, to believe that I'm not the Savior. I think that's the adversary's power, right? He's going to try and take this pivotal, triumphant moment and try to shake the faith of the apostles. I don't know if it's because they're watching him for these few hours or if it's when the guards come. I'm not sure when they doubt or if how deep that doubt goes, but that's why they need prayer. In fact, it's the exact same reason we need prayer. Because no matter how solid my testimony is, there will be times when I will be shaken. I mean, I guess once you're fully converted, that hopefully won't happen anymore. But I think as we're growing in this phase, you will have moments of doubt. In fact, one of the things I read was President Oaks, and he talked about how we need to have reservoirs of faith for these moments when you have to take a leap. Some of the examples, it's in the notes, but some of the examples he gave is like when you hear something from the First Presidency or the Brethren, it doesn't agree with your political views. You have to have a reservoir of faith in the gospel itself so that you can be obedient and follow until the Savior or until the Holy Ghost can teach you more, like until you can get a better understanding. You need to sometimes draw on this reservoir of faith. And I feel like that's what he's trying to teach them. So in the garden, you get just a taste of his experience. Thankfully, with the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants, we get a lot more understanding. But you can tell this is sacred ground. These are reverent topics that we only get a a portion of, of what he experienced. In fact, most of the prophets and apostles I read said, no one can wrap their heads around what, what actually occurred on this night. We only get a sliver of understanding from the scriptures, but what we have, we should go slowly through. So you see in 42, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. This is a weighty statement. Um, It's similar to what we studied before. What I like in this account, especially in Luke, is that you see that the Father answered the Savior's prayer. He He didn't give him what he was asking for, but he does answer the prayer. What I like about this is it's similar to what we just saw the Savior do for Peter. He doesn't want him to take this cup away from Peter. He knows Peter needs the adversity in order to become the mighty apostle that he needs to be. So he asked him to have strength, you know, faith to endure. And that's kind of what God the Father does in this moment. When he can't remove this cup from his son, he gives him strength. So if you look in the verses, 43, it says, And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. I don't know 
who this angel appeared to. I don't even know if the Savior himself could see the angel or if he was so, you know, a lot of the verses that we study in the different gospels talk about him being prostrate on the ground, fell on his face is how it's described. So I, I don't know how aware he is of this outside angelic influence, but God the Father is aware and he sends this angel to comfort. We don't know who this angel is. Uh, there's a lot of theories out there, but whoever it is, is able to offer strength to the Savior in this pivotal moment when he is in agony. In fact, that's what the verse says in 44. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This is what we, you know, this isn't hyperbole. This isn't, you know, this is literal. It's what we learn from the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants in section 19, that he literally sweat drops of blood in this encounter. I really loved, this week I watched the Bible videos of just these few experiences that we cover. I watched the Savior's suffering in Gethsemane. I saw Peter's denial. I saw the, even the judging with Pilate. I just, it was so beautifully done in the Bible videos that I would encourage you to go back, especially if you're trying to teach kids or teenagers. They just depicted it in such a reverent way and still testified of all these things that did, ha did happen, what this agony must have been like. And I love that in that moment of agony, despite the fact that an angel has been sent, he prays more earnestly. That's his only solution. And his only lifeline is to pray more earnestly for help. And then he comes to the disciples. So I don't know if there's breaks in his suffering. It seems like maybe there are breaks where he can go and he can approach them, but they're asleep. In fact, in the Luke account, it says they were sleeping for sorrow. The Joseph's translation says they were filled with sorrow. And you have to empathize with them. You know, I just think the, what we know from the Joseph translation is this was a heavy, weighty experience just to be in the perimeter. What it reminded me of is when I went to the Yad Vashem with my mom, we went to DC when I was a teenager. And that's how I felt in that space. You know, it's this Holocaust museum that is so beautifully done, but so heavy. I felt the same thing when I went with Hannah to New York and we went to the 9-11 museum. There was just a weight to intentionally, there's a weight and I can be in there for a certain amount of time. And then I need to go outside and I need to take a big deep breath and I need the sun. <laughs> you know, I can't, you just can't stay there. And for me, when I say that, see that they were sleeping for sorrow, that's what that means to me. Like they, they their physical bodies just can't keep up. They cannot descend to where he is going to go. And they, they just struggle. And I don't think the Savior is disappointed that he's not, they're not supporting him as much as he's worried that they are not fighting off those temptations anymore. You know, they, he wants them to be alert and vigilant and fighting against the adversary. And they're going to struggle to do that if they're sleeping. So that's what he guides them to do. He says in 46, why sleep ye rise and pray lest ye enter into temptation. The last 20 verses or so focus on the betrayal of Judas and then the actual apprehension of the savior and taking him before the Jewish leaders. And it's, a little hard to read, but there are some beautiful, soft additions in the Luke account that you just don't get anywhere else. For example, if you look in 50, this is where Peter, we learn it's Peter later, but that he slices the ear of one of the guards of the high priest. So in 50, and one of them smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And Jesus answered and said, suffer ye thus far. And he touched his ear and he healed him. This is one of the only accounts where we see that he heals this man who has his ear severed. In fact, another one of the readings I one of the scholars I read said when he says that he healed him, it means to attach. So he literally somehow attached his ear and healed it all at once. And I don't know what the phrase suffer ye thus far means technically. I read several different Bible translations, and most of them said something like, it is enough, or that's that's as far as it can go, kind of a phrase. I really like, this is total Maria interpretation, but I really like thinking that the Savior who has experienced hours of blood and pain and sorrow and weight sees someone else suffer and bleed and he, he won't have it. <laughs> I just, I think it's his heart, right? He, in my mind, he heals this man simply because he hurts. And that's my interpretation of it because he, he says that's far enough, you know, like I won't have any more. And, and I just thought it was a beautiful way to look at it. I'm sure the other ones are accurate. And maybe this one is inaccurate, but 
For me, it gave me comfort because I think some of the trials we endure have nothing to do with God's intentions. They're simply the acts of men or the fact that we live in a fallen world or we get rammed in an intersection of agency. And I think there is a point when he says, suffer ye thus far. And he reaches out and he heals and he pulls you out of those situations. For sometimes that comes in this life and for all of us, it for sure will come in the next. And I just think we can all relate to Malchus, you know, this this man with a severed ear who is healed. And don't you just wonder what he thinks in this moment or what everyone else thinks as they watch this happen? I just, I can't imagine, even as they're taking the Savior across, you know, back to the palace where he's going to be judged, I just can't imagine what's going through their heads and what this man hears in this ear and how he feels. I just, I wonder. I hope someday we get to hear more of what happened in his head. But he talks about, how he's been with them all the time. Why are they coming with weapons? Why do they come with this massive multitude of guards and people with torches and staves and swords? And Because he's been with them in the temple every day. And now all of a sudden, there is a darkness in them. And that's what he talks about. And then he gets carried off to the priest's house. And this is where you see Peter deny the Savior in the Luke account. What's interesting to me, especially if you watch the Bible video about this, they sort of show Peter wrestling with people accusing him of being associated with the Savior because he's trying to stay in the place where the Savior will eventually come out of that judgment area. And I like that interpretation. I don't know if that's accurate, but I felt like what I thought was impressive about Peter is when he heard the Savior say, you're going to deny me three times, I wonder if Peter worried that he would deny that Jesus Christ was the Son of God or was the Savior that they all hoped he would be. But really his denial is just that he's associated with them. I know him not. I, you know, I don't know that man, which I think is not the level of denial that he could have gone. You know, he could have said to people, he's not the Christ. He's not the son of God. He could have, he could have denied in a whole bigger way. And instead his denial is, I don't know him. And I think this changes Peter's heart. You know, it galvanizes him when that cock crows and he remembers the words of the Savior. In fact, what you get in Luke 22 that you don't see in the other gospels is the Savior looks on Peter. In the Bible video, they show this where they cross paths a little bit and there's this ache in Peter's heart. So if you look in 61, and the Lord turned and looked upon Peter and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said unto him, for the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. These are godly sorrow tears. Now, Peter will pivot and change and never have this again. In fact, I love, I think it was Elder Holland. It's in the notes, but he talked about how it's not in spite of this betrayal phase that Peter becomes the leader that he is. It's admittedly because of it. This situation changes who he is and he he has a resolve to be a different kind of man after this point. There's a great talk from President Monson where he basically says the old Peter died in this moment and a new one emerges. This weeping bitterly is is an appropriate response. It's the same thing we feel when we have serious sins to repent of. There is a phase of contrition that is heavy on the heart. And then there is a change and a resolve. And that's what we see Peter do all, all the time forward. Then they take him, They similar to what we read before, they blindfold him, they strike him on the face and ask him to prophesy. It's It'll make your stomach turn a little bit to read it. Um, what I liked about it, there was a quote from Bruce Porter that I really like. This is Sister Porter's um, late husband who passed away. And it, it was poignant. I wish I could read you the whole quote, but he basically said that this is a situation where there are cruelties and indignities that happen to the Savior, and they're a last-ditch effort from Satan. Because of the triumph that just happened in Gethsemane, what Elder Porter is teaching is the, the Satan knows if he can just get the Savior to even fight back, you know, like in this situation, if he can get him to swing a punch or just get angry or you know, in his weakened, bruised, bloodied, vulnerable state, strike back in any way, he can wipe out all the triumph that just happened. But because the Savior has poise, it, a poise that is remarkable in every way, he holds all of that in. He has the self-control to simply go and to follow and to, to allow these things to happen, these indignities to happen. 
they continue as he goes into this Jewish council. So essentially what's going to happen is Jesus is going to be tried by the Jews. They're going to accuse him of blasphemy, but they can't execute him because that's not allowed. It has to be authorized by the Romans. So to get the Romans to turn against Jesus, they're going to change his accusation from blasphemy to something that would offend Romans, which is more sedition or treason. They're going to basically paint Jesus as a king, someone who's claimed to be a king, which would then be a threat to Rome. So you can kind of see a taste of that. We'll get it better in when we get into the John account. But at the end of Luke 22, you see him warn about that. You see him talking to the Jews who ask, art thou the Christ? And he says, if I tell you, you would not believe. And also, if I ask you, you will not answer me, nor let me go. And then he testifies of who he is. Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. And then they basically say, we've heard it for ourselves. We don't need any witnesses. Because he said to them, ye say that I am. He knows who he is, and he will not back down. And so they have all that they need to carry him towards the Romans. There was a, do you remember when we were studying the Doctrine and Covenants, that experience we read of Joseph Smith in Richmond Jail? It's like from somebody else's account. I put it in the notes, but he's talking about how he's only seen dignity like this or like majesty. I can't remember the words he used. I remember the phrase terrible majesty was in it. That's what he described when he talked about there's all these guards and they're speaking negatively and they're talking about what they're going to do to the women and the children. And then after several hours of listening to this, Joseph stands and if I remember right, he says like it was like the roar of lion or the strike of lightning to hear his voice and he commands them basically to stop and then they cower. I wonder sometimes if it was tempting for the Savior to sound like that. I imagine he looked like that, but he... His voice, I imagine, was not a roaring of a lion. I think it could have been. And he chose instead to just stay level. He is continually poised and he is he knows exactly where their hearts are. And it doesn't matter if his voice sounds like a lion and it doesn't matter if lightning could strike in that moment. They simply will not believe. Because remember, these aren't just wicked men. They are wicked men who have been involved in priestcraft and that they are, they will not believe. And he knows that. So he he keeps his calm demeanor and he continues in this sham of a trial as it rolls forward. Okay, now it's time to shift into John 18. What I really like about John, well, we've talked about this from the very beginning, is he seems to have a hope of teaching us things about the Savior's experiences and the Savior's character that we might have missed in the other Gospels. His is going to sound different and be different because he has a different kind of testimony to share. He's the one, I remember I, at the very beginning of John, I talked to you about that experience I had with hearing Elaine Dalton's testimony when she spoke of her belief in prophets because she's seen prophets and worked with prophets and she believes in Revelation because she's seen it. And just hearing those words, even though she didn't say them in any dramatic fashion, like resonated with my heart. And that's what I feel like John's trying to do for us. He's saying, there are things you need to know. What's powerful about John is he's teaching at a time of apostasy when people are shaking in their faith. There are people that have been baptized and had been, had testimonies and now are shaking. They're, they're not fully converted and he's, he's there to strengthen, right? That's what John is hoping to do. So he teaches us some things that will strengthen our faith, even if we feel a little bit shaky. So you're going to see in his storyline, he basically talks about them going through this valley where there's a brook in order to get to the Garden of Gethsemane. A lot of scholars I read compared this to the Lord's Prayer in Psalms, where he talks about the valley of the shadow of death and how he will fear, fear no evil. There's some cool parallels to verse one. And then in two, John teaches us that Judas knew this place. So it says, Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. This just bugged me, you guys. I don't know a better way to say this. The same way, it really bothers me that he betrays the Savior with a kiss, this token of love and friendship. He uses that to betray the Savior. I feel the same way about this place. Of all the places he chooses to betray the Savior, he chooses this place, this sacred space where only the apostles know that this is where they go. You know, I don't know if he teaches them private sermons here. I don't know if he's told them what will happen in the Garden of Gethsemane to some degree, but this is the place Judas picks. And it just, it just seems like twisting the knife a little bit to me that he picks this place. In fact, I think it's interesting what happens as they approach. So you can see that the, the multitude approaches with their torches and their lanterns and their swords, and the Savior comes to them. So in the other Gospels, it makes it sound like the multitude 
caught the Savior almost mid-sentence. They always say that he knew that they were coming and that he would be betrayed, but it almost seems like they come to him. In the John account, the Savior approaches them and says, whom's he I like the John account because <laughs> that's how I picture the Savior. You know, I picture him, he is not afraid and he is not diminutive. He doesn't shy away. He he stands and says, whom's he And then you see Judas's response. So they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. That last phrase, there was a talk from a conference a couple years ago that I found this week in my study that said, this is a pretty important phrase, that in this moment where Judas could have changed his mind or could have rethought what he was about to do, he stands his ground and he becomes essentially a servant to the adversary. He has sold over his independence to the adversary and he stands with the opponents of the Savior, rather than with all the other apostles on the other side. But you have to love what comes next, and you only get it in John. So this is what it says. And they answered him, oh, in six, and soon, sorry, as soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. We don't get that in the other Gospels, you guys. This is like, you know those moments in the Avengers movies when like Thor hits his hammer on the ground, and there's this and everybody topples over or like when Hulk lands and everybody topples over. That's how I picture it. I know it's probably not as cinematically dramatic as that, but this happens in this moment. They all go backwards and fall back. And then they have the audacity to continue to talk to Jesus. What's amazing to me is I've always kind of wondered how Malchus must have felt having his ear cut off and then healed. This tells me that every one of these people in this multitude essentially had a Malchus-like experience. They all knew what it felt to hear his voice and have it knock them over. And then they stood back up and they still approached him. To me, I almost think he's asking them like, are you sure you still want to do this to all of the multitude, not just to Judas? Because that's what he says in seven. Then asked he them again, whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He's given them a chance to change their mind. I really think this is his character, right? He's going to extend as many opportunities as he can to get them to change. Even if a few of them in the multitude change or walk away, then they're spared of being complicit in this evil act. And I think that's why he makes this, why they fall back, because he's hoping to just save a few. That's just my theory, but I can see that in his character. And Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way. He's a leader and a servant in this moment. He's taught his apostles that in the Last Supper meal, and now he's demonstrating it. You can have me, but you need to let these guys go. What I think is really incredible, you guys, is that they do. <laughs> you know, like, they don't take all of his apostles. They let them go, even after the ear incident. In fact, that's what you're going to see next. Then Simon Peter, in verse 10, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And then said Jesus unto Peter, put up thy sword into the sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? That's his moment of poise and power where he says, this is all a part of it. What I just experienced in Gethsemane is only a portion of what I will do here there is more to come and I will drink whatever cup the, the God, God the Father puts in front of me. And so he teaches Peter and teaches everyone in the multitude at this same moment and chooses to submit. So in the Bible video, in fact, I think it was in Jesus the Christ, they talk about how they would have put a rope around his neck and he willingly submits his hands and they take him off. Where they take him to is to a few different people. First, they go to Annas, is I think how they say his name. Essentially what happened is, he was the rightful high priest, you know, the one that's like through the Levitical line and the tribe of Aaron, the, the Aaron's descendant. And then when the Romans came into power, they pulled him out and implanted somebody else in. It happens to be his son-in-law. Well, you learn as you study their family a little bit more as they're sort of known for greed and manipulation and power. In fact, five of his sons or son-in-laws will take that high priestly position. You get the feeling that he's a bit of a, I hate to use the term godfather, but you know what I mean? Like there is... There's something else motivating these men um, to hold on to their power. And so he's led to him first, and then later goes to Caiaphas, the son-in-law, who's the actual designated high priest by the Romans. You can go in the notes and learn more about this. But this is also when you see the denial of Peter in the John account. Just in the John account, it's sort of broken up. So you get sort of part one where he denies, then you learn more of what happens to the Savior. 
And then you see part two of the denial play out. You also see how he's treated in this court as he goes from one high priest to the other. Remember, these are all the Jewish leaders. But I thought it was particularly repugnant, maybe is the right word, of these high priests. Is the role of the high priest is specific, right? The high priest is the one who, on the Day of Atonement, is the only one that can go into the Holy of Holies and can dare to approach that shrine area, that holy place, and, you know, pour out his heart and the sins of the children of Israel in, in the hopes of redemption. Like, that, that is, that's who these men are. And so for them to have this blackness in their heart is particularly repugnant. It's the only word I can think of that fits. Um, and that's, I think it helps set the stage in my mind for how far they have fallen when you think about what they've been asked to do. The John account seems to slow down that denial story of Peter. And one of the reasons I really like that, particularly with John, is if his audience is, is a big group of people who are struggling in their testimony, who maybe were strong when they joined and were baptized and now are shaky, the story of Peter and his denials would be comforting and relatable, right? That, that the great Peter, who I'm sure they've either, if they haven't seen him or met him, they know of him, that he also had these moments of struggle. I think John puts a nice warm spotlight on Peter and says, if he can be there and become the man he is, so can you. Hold on to your faith. Let Peter be your example. To me, it's a similar thing we see in the Book of Mormon with Alma the Younger when he's older and he's talking to his son Helaman and he tells his story about who he once was and how far off the path he was and how he came around. I think it's the same basic message that, that we see with both of them. When you go a little further in the verses, you're going to see him go to Pilate. So once the Jews have decided that he is guilty and they're going to have him executed, they need to get the Romans on board. So they have to go to the Romans next, and that's Pilate. What's interesting is in order for them to get to Pilate, they have to go to the Hall of Judgment, which is a Gentile facility. And these are people who are hoping to celebrate Passover with their families and their friends. And so they won't even step foot in the Hall of Judgment. I thought was just interesting, I guess is maybe the word about that is they're willing to execute the Son of God. They're willing to plot a murder of someone they know has no sin and no error in them and who just healed their own guard's ears in front of them. Like they know all those things and they're still willing to put the Savior up for execution, but they won't do what is visible to others. You know, all of this, all these trials happen kind of almost clandestinely. At night he goes to Annas's house and then in early in the morning they meet in a council. I think James Talmadge said it was like at four in the morning. This is an a partial council early, early in the morning. Everything is a bit shady and secretive because they like to be visibly obedient. I, I felt like in this chapter in particular, you see what the Savior taught about them being these whited sepulchers, this where you are lovely on the outside and what anyone else will see, you are careful with. They won't step foot in the hall of judgment, even to talk to Pilate to try and get the Savior executed, but they will lie and cheat and, you know, like they'll do all kinds of things in secret, but not in public. And I just think the hypocrisy is, it leaps off the page in John 18. You also will see how they try to get Pilate to turn against the Savior. It just doesn't work. In fact, next week, we're going to read this even more as you go into the other gospels to see how Pilate goes back and forth on this. Where Pilate is struggling is he really wants I think he believes the Savior is innocent. In fact, he's going to say that. I find no fault in him. Because when he interviews the Savior in his, you know, hall, where the Jews won't even come, when he interviews him, he finds no fault in him. Because basically what the Savior teaches is, I'm no threat to the Roman Empire. Because Pilate asks him, are you a king? So he says, art thou king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, sayeth thou this thing of thyself, or do others tell it of, thee, of me? What's interesting to me about that choice of phrase is essentially what the Savior is doing is, is he's planting a seed in Pilate's mind of, aren't you the ruler here? You should make your own decisions, which I think is an interesting approach, right? It's a way for, in a non-combative way, to say to Pilate, are you sure you want to do this? And where did this come from? Because the maybe the ego in Pilate would say like, oh, maybe this actually isn't my idea and I'm in charge here. You know, I, I don't know if that's how the Savior is playing this, but I feel like he's trying to make sure that Pilate knows clearly what he's doing. I don't think it's because he's trying to 
entrap Pilate or trick him. I think he wants Pilate the same way he hoped the people in that multitude might feel the falling back and change course. I think he's trying to extend as many chances to Pilate to get out of this as as Pilate will accept. And so he puts that thought in his mind, like, are you sure this is your thought or did this come from somebody else? And then Pilate basically says, like, your guys delivered you to me. What have you done? And this is when the Savior teaches about what his kingdom is. It's no threat to Rome. It's not a political kingdom. His political, his political kingdom won't come until after the second coming. That's when there will be a literal kingdom on earth. It's spiritual kingdom. And he talks about it. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is not my kingdom, not, not from hence. He's of no threat to Rome. And so Pilate has no reason to execute him. He has no reason to believe any of the things that he's heard so far. And so he asked him, Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? And Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth, and everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. This is totally my interpretation of this verse, but I actually wonder if Pilate's like at a tipping point where he almost believes. I Sometimes I wonder if when he says, art thou a king then, if he actually is tempted to kneel, you know, or something like that. Like, I think I can see him hearing the Savior's voice and seeing this interchange play out and Pilate being, you know, he's just a lower man on the totem pole in this big Roman hierarchy. I could see him recognize the dignity and majesty in Jesus Christ in front of him and question legitimately, are you a king? And what the Savior says is everyone that will hear truth will recognize me. It's almost like he's extending this olive branch to Pilate saying like, I know you feel something in this moment. Act on it. Choose it. What's really hard about Pilate's response this week and next week is he just doesn't. He doesn't have the integrity to hold that truth. It reminds me of, do you remember in the, I think it was one of the very first lessons in the Old Testament where we talked about the post-it notes. We put post-it notes on the floor and that one is truth and that you can't stretch to the other post-it note that's untruth and still keep your foot solidly planted in truth. And so what Pilate's trying to do here is he knows Jesus is innocent. In fact, several times next week, he's going to teach us and tell us that he believes Jesus is innocent of all crimes. But he also wants the opinion of the people and he wants the power and he wants to maintain the status quo. And the only way he can do that is to step away from what he knows is true. He, his legs can't reach to both post-it notes. So he has to take his foot off the one that says that Jesus is innocent so that he can preserve his popularity and his power. And anytime we step away from truth, we lose a chance to know, to know things for certain. That's what Jesus came to teach. That's what his kingdom is. That's who will belong in his kingdom. And so this olive branch that he extended to Pilate, Pilate doesn't take. So he says, almost in this passing comment, kind of, I think, maybe because this is what Romans loved to debate. You know, they love to talk about truth and reason and logic. And so he throws out this barb of what is truth? You know, I think he's at this tipping point and he has a moment to choose. And in this moment, he retreats. He could have pulled closer to the spirit, but he pulled back and he retreats back to who he was before he encountered this incredible man in his, in the early hours of the morning in this hall of judgment. He retreats back to this Roman egotistical, you know, lack of integrity man who struggles to find balance. And he says, what is truth? So then he goes out to the Jews and he says, I don't find any fault in him, but there's a custom that you have that you can release someone. In, in the John account, it makes it seem like he's saying this simply to the Jews who are in front of him, these members of the Sanhedrin or this small group of men that are there early in the morning. And they, of course, turn away from this tradition, this tradition that's, that would have given them an opening to let the Savior go free. They demand the freeing of Barabbas instead. We're going to read more about that choice and how Herod plays part in that. But I think just seeing this simple version in John of Pilate and his wrestle with these moments inspired me to, when I get to these tipping points, to lean in as hard as it is. And as much as it will be a departure from popularity and comfort and all those things on that second post-it note, to step to truth instead, I think, is the invitation that even Pilate in his wrong choice inspires me to do something better. Well, 
welcome back you guys all right time to get to the creative side of week 24. i know it's just a couple chapters but i promise there is loads to work with so in this week's lesson i'm pulling out three simple object lessons to help you just make some of these concepts a little more meaningful and memorable and simple so to kick things off i really loved the interaction peter has with the savior somewhere between the last supper and the garden of gethsemane this is when the savior warns him that satan desires to have him and sift him as wheat so we're going to talk about that in the first object lesson and then talk about the savior's response to peter in the second object lesson his guidance about becoming converted. So first one, we're going to do a simple analogy that talks about first aid. My hope here is that you'll actually teach your kids some key concept of first aid that fits for whatever age group it is that you're teaching. But I think you can tie this in a really beautiful way to the guidance the Savior gave Peter. The second one is a little simpler. It's Tech Week on the chart. So my goal with Tech Week is always that you teach your kids how to use technology for good. The Gospel Library has so many cool tools that will help your kids dive into their scriptures and get more out of them. And a big one is helps us understand conversion. I actually found it hidden in the settings area a few months ago, maybe six months ago. And I think what the church has provided in that settings area where you can put notifications on has huge potential in helping your kids become more converted. So I'm going to walk you through how to use the notifications in the church gospel library app and show you ways that it can put a little more daily discipleship into their everyday life. Third one involves a little more adventure and food color and lots of fun. This one is to just help your kids try to understand what the Savior's suffering actually gives us. Thankfully, a lot of this is written out for you in the Come Follow Me manual, and it ties you to places like the Book of Mormon and Mosiah and DNC 19, where you learn more about why the Savior did what he did in the Garden of Gethsemane to give us this gift. So my hope is to help your kids understand what that gift is, and why we should appreciate it as much as we do. And there's a really cool way to teach it. If you were with us at the very beginning of the Doctrine and Covenants, we use this to teach about justification and sanctification, and we're going to put a new spin on it this time to help you teach the power of the atonement. So for this, you just need a couple containers. Ideally, if you have two containers that are similar sized, like two big mason jars, that would work great. You want them to be clear so that you can see the actions that are happening inside, and then you want some supplies to make the action happen. To do that, you need some kind of oil. Technically, any kind of cooking oil could work. I just found that the clear oils looked so much cooler. So if you have a chance to grab something like baby oil or a mineral oil, it works much better and you can see the colors more vibrantly. Speaking of colors, that's the other supply that you're going to need. You want just regular food coloring. Don't get the gel kind. You really want the kind that is water-based because it's going to do some really cool things when you teach this object lesson. So water-based food coloring, as many colors as you want, about a cup or so of mineral oil or any kind of oil, and then a couple cups of water, two containers, and you'll have everything you need to pull off this really awesome object lesson. Okay, that's your full supplies list. Let's get started. All right, you guys, that's it for week 24. I really hope you enjoy this week's study. There's a great quote from President Nelson. It's in that same talk that I referenced in the object lessons where he said, Jesus suffered deeply because he loves you deeply, exclamation point. He wants you to repent and be converted so he can fully heal you. This week of study, because it's the Garden of Gethsemane and we're experiencing that suffering with the Savior to some degree, it can feel really heavy. But I think what the prophets have tried to teach us is this is a message of hope. Everything he's going to teach you and demonstrate for you and for me this week was all about why we can have profound hope in the promises. And I just think it's rich. I hope you thoroughly enjoy it. If you need extra help, you're welcome to join me on the live. I haven't been able to be there the last two weeks because we had Memorial Day and then our vacation, but this week I should be back. So Monday morning at 10 a.m. Mountain Time, feel free to pop on Instagram and you can watch me interact with everybody, answer questions if you have them, or just share some of the insights that I couldn't quite cram into all the videos. I'll also walk through the object lessons in a little more detail. So if you have questions about the oil or the food coloring or how to pull things off, that's a good place to find me. If you're in the course, I hope you'll jump into the notes. This week's study of the notes is probably, what, like 39 pages long? Because you guys, there were so many good quotes that I just couldn't pass them up. So as I was studying, I pulled from conference talks from the last five years and even much further back to give some insights and understanding from our leaders about what they have to say about these verses. So jump into the notes. I promise you'll find a feast there. But otherwise, I hope you just find ways to teach the gospel creatively. For me, one of the most profound ways I've found to 
be more converted is to teach as often and as imperfectly as I can. I never do it as well as I hope I will, but every time I try to teach, my conversion deepens, and I promise that will happen for you as well. So try to teach. Use my object lessons. Come up with your own. It doesn't matter. Try to study and then try to teach and watch what the Spirit will do to get this content and these witnesses a little bit deeper in your heart. I promise it's worth it. Whatever time you can give it, it's worth it. All right, you guys, enjoy this week of study, and I'll see you next week in week 25. Thanks again for joining me, you guys. If this content is resonating well with you, I hope you'll consider liking and subscribing, leaving a review if you can, and then also popping over to the full course. In the Creative Come Follow Me course, I provide weekly content in full videos. So full videos, the insights, videos of all three object lessons, as well as all the tools you need to support it. So within the course, you'll find professionally designed printables each week. You'll find extensive study notes so that you can go a lot deeper into the text. You'll also find three years of back content. So for since 2020 in the Book of Mormon, I've been creating weekly content and object lessons to help facilitate meaningful, memorable, simple learning. So if those are tools that would help your family or your class, I hope you'll consider subscribing. Head on over to creativecomefollowme.com. You can find sample videos, sample printables, and an option to subscribe for a month and test it out for your family and see if it's a good fit for you. I hope you enjoy it.